Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Monday, January 8th. Israel has been at war for 94 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. A big thank you to my colleague, Rich Goldberg, who took the wheel while I was in Israel last week. And another big thank you to my colleagues, Aaron Blumenthal and Michael Avioni, who kept the show running. And they always do. The Morning Brief is a team effort. We're all committed to giving you the news and analysis that you deserve. So keep tuning in and we'll keep it going. Deal? This morning, I'll be joined by Mark Regev, Israel's former ambassador to the UK and now senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We'll check in with him about the latest in Israel. But before we hear from Ambassador Regev, I thought I'd share a few thoughts from my recent trip. First, let me just say that I walked away more heartened than I expected. With all the doom and gloom in the news, I expected to see a very different Israel Sure, the country has changed, but spirits are high. Reservists are performing remarkably well on the battlefield, and there is a sort of gritty determination across Israeli society that is impossible to ignore. In my conversations with diplomats, military, and other officials, I was struck by the immense gratitude for American support. Yes, there is tension between Israel and the United States over the duration and intensity of the war, and there are manipulative leaks by U.S. officials designed to push the Israelis towards certain outcomes, particularly in Lebanon. But the Israelis will never forget the support they have received. They do not take it for granted. And I heard that time and again. And yet there is concern about what's happening here in the United States. I heard that from Israelis throughout. The Israelis know that we are entering our political cycle. Elections loom in November, and Israelis really don't want their war to become part of the debate here. They want to fight the war in accordance with international law and according to their own national security needs. Our political debates may make that mission more difficult. Oh, and the American non-response to Iranian proxy aggression, that came up more than a few times too. The news about the hospitalization of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin came out after I returned, but I'm sure that will raise some uncomfortable questions as well. As for the war in Gaza, I came away with a distinct sense that the hard fighting is nearly done. Former IDF Chief of Staff Benny Gantz confirmed this today. The Gaza war is now reportedly entering its third phase. The Gaza war is definitely going to continue. Khan Yunus is still the scene of some tough fighting, but the surrounding areas, not so much. Of course, the Israelis will not stop operating until every tunnel is destroyed and every rocket is found. That could take months, but the tempo in Gaza appears set to change. Admittedly, all bets are off if a war erupts with Hezbollah in the north. Hostilities seem more likely after the assassination of Salah al-Aruri in the heart of Beirut last week. Hezbollah waited for a few days and then it unleashed a torrent of rockets at Israel in recent days. The U.S. has been holding Israel back. Uh, but this morning, the Israelis report that they took out a senior commander of the Radwan forces in southern Israel. A Hezbollah response to that will undoubtedly come and the region remains on a knife's edge. Okay, moving on to our, our top three big headlines today. The IDF discovered an underground rocket facility in Gaza 
designed to produce precision-guided munitions. Here's the thing. PGMs have been a major Israeli concern for several years now. The Iranians have come to understand that the so-called dumb rockets they provided to their proxies were always going to be susceptible to interception by Iron Dome. Converting those rockets to precision weapons that could be guided was the Iranian solution. But the PGM threat was seen as a Hezbollah initiative. Hamas PGMs? Not so much. So now what? The tunnels uh, leading to the facility, they were fiercely defended by Hamas fighters. Were any of them captured? If so, maybe they're talking. I'd like to learn more about that. Of course, that may not be publicized anytime soon, but if Hamas has significant PGM capabilities, it could have been another intelligence failure. We need to track this one closely. Headline two, Chinese shipping company Costco has halted operations to Israel via the Red Sea. Here's the deal. More than a half dozen other companies have either ended or suspended their operations in the Red Sea because of maritime aggression by the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen. But China? This is a country that takes its trade very seriously. This could have been a moment for Beijing to step up and tell its ally Iran to stand down. That didn't happen. So now what? This seems to me like a clarifying moment. China has tried to assert in recent years that it is a world power. China's also made noise about brokering talks between Israel and the Palestinians. But since the war erupted on October 7th, China has been a non-factor. If anything, rather than demanding that Iran bring an end to this crisis, China has enabled the Islamic Republic to continue its proxy war against Israel. To be sure, the crisis redounds to China's benefit in many ways. A world focused on violence in the Middle East is a world distracted by Chinese aggression in the Taiwan Strait. More on that in a few minutes. And finally, headline three, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling the region in what has been described as an effort to prevent a wider war. Now, here's what we know. Blinken visited Qatar and Jordan, two countries with little influence on the current crisis between Hezbollah and Israel. It's equally unclear what the UAE and Saudi Arabia bring to the table for that matter. Iran is the key to reigning in Hezbollah, Iran and Iran alone. So what's my take? The Biden administration has spent three years talking to the Iranians. That failed. Not only did these talks fail to yield a nuclear deal, they failed to forge relationships that could be leveraged during times of crisis, times like these. It's probably too late to put pressure on the regime to, to deter Hezbollah aggression. That horse is out of the barn. But it's not too late to start isolating, sanctioning, and undermining the regime in Tehran. Regardless of the current crisis in the Middle East, that is a policy long overdue. Okay, those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Ambassador Mark Regev. He was Israeli ambassador in London from 2016 to 2020. Prior to that, he was the spokesman for the prime minister's office for nearly 10 years. Today, he's a senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Welcome, Ambassador Regev. Good morning. Well, thank you for joining us today. I want to start with a question that I think we're all asking ourselves right now as Antony Blinken travels the region. The U.S. continues to warn of that wider war in the Middle East. He's, of course, talking about Hezbollah primarily. And U.S. officials seem to think this is Israel's responsibility. How do you respond to that? 
So uh, he'll be meeting with the Prime Minister uh, here in Tel Aviv uh, tomorrow. He's arriving tonight. I'm sure he'll have a series of meetings here. He always does. Uh, the meeting with the Prime Minister, of course, being the most important meeting. Look, in his past meetings here and in our other conversations with senior American officials, uh, we are told that there is a chance for a diplomatic solution to the north. In other words, that uh, Hezbollah can be moved back from the northern frontier. Ultimately, as you know, uh, the UN uh, Security Council Resolution 1701 says specifically at a first step, I mean, ultimately, Hezbollah should be disarmed. But as a first step, that uh, Hezbollah should redeploy north of the Latani River. And they have, of course, not done so. Now, it must be understood. Uh, we've got the, all the members of the uh, communities by our northern border have left because they are concerned. They've been left because uh, some of them left by choice and some of them left because the Israeli government asked them to, to redeploy. But, but we are not going to see Israeli citizens return to their homes in the north without a solution to the Hezbollah problem. And I want to be clear here, there will be no return to October 6th in the north. Uh, Israelis will not have these forces, just like Hamas, right on the border, right by the fence, and living in fear that they're going to crash through the border and attack and kill our people the same way Hamas did on October 7th. It's just not going to happen. And uh, the UN says, of course, that they shouldn't be there in the first place. They should be north of the Leitani River. Now, I hope a diplomatic solution makes this possible. But we're getting uh, close to a moment of truth, and, and diplomacy uh, uh, will be given a chance. But ultimately, Israel will not tolerate the continued presence of Hezbollah right on our border. That is unsustainable. The people of northern Israel won't stand for it. We cannot return to normal life in Israel's north as long as Hezbollah is right on our border. Understood. Um, I certainly heard that quite a bit during my recent trip. Let me ask you about something else. Uh, the International Court of Justice is uh, going to hear South Africa's case accusing Israel of genocide this week. I noted, by the way, that former Supreme Court Justice Aharon Barak is representing Israel. That's a bit ironic, I think, given how often he appeared in the Israeli press um, or his name appeared in the Israeli press over the last you know, uh, year or so. But apart from that, how do you expect this to play out? How does Israel tackle this problem? So the government of Israel took a decision to engage with the uh, ICJ, and we're sending a top delegation there uh, to The Hague to present Israel's case. Obviously, the South African government is acting in a way that is irresponsible and critical, uh, hypocritical, um, uh, accusing Israel of genocide, uh, uh, parroting uh, Hamas's mendacious claims, uh, allegations, and uh, we'll be making our case as strongly as we can. And uh, uh, before taking the decision to go to the court, we took the advice of our best legal people in the Ministry of Justice, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in the National Security Council, and we believe we have a chance uh, to fight this and fight it successfully. Uh, and we will do so. Uh, the South Africans' uh, behavior, as I said, is, is atrocious. Modern South Africa prides itself on being the rainbow society, yes, uh, saying no to racism. And yet the, here they've allied themselves with anti-Jewish racists, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Hamas. 
And, and don't take my word for it, to read the Hamas Charter, where the way they talk about Jews and Jewish conspiracies. You know, the, if you read the uh, uh, Hamas Charter, not only the Jews have no right to a state in any borders, not only is every Jew a, a legitimate uh, target for their murderous campaign of terror, but there's all sorts of uh, terrible, uh, preposterous uh, conspiracy theories uh, about the World wars, the Jews started the, the world wars and profited from them. The Jews pollute the morals of, of young, righteous Muslim women. All this sort of stuff that reminds us of mid-20th century anti-Semitism. Uh, and, and for a country that upholds the principle of anti-racism to align itself with these Hamas racists, these people who are openly anti-Semitic, I mean, it, it's the ultimate hypocrisy. And of course, just the fact that the South Africans were the ones who submitted this, I think the symbolism was, is, was expected to be powerful. And they, from all appearances, they've allowed themselves to become a tool here. Um, let me ask you about something else. And, and, and this, I have to say, it, it bothered me a bit while I was in Israel. Um, all of the wars on Israel's borders right now, and even beyond Israel's borders, they all track back to one country. And of course, we know which country that is. That's the Islamic Republic of Iran. And yet Israel is trading fire with Iran's proxies, very rarely targeting the regime itself. How would you how would you respond to those who would say that Israel's fighting the wrong fight right now, that dealing with these tactical issues when the strategic challenge of Iran remains, that this would be a mistake on Israel's part? So you're 100 percent correct when you say that Israel is being attacked on a numerous fronts and they're all connected to Iran. Obviously, Hamas is connected to Iran, Hamas in Gaza. Uh, uh, as has been said numerously, some 93% of their military budget comes directly for Iran. Iran gives them training, gives them weapons, uh, gives them cash. Uh, the Iranian connection with Hamas is indisputable. And then in the north, Hezbollah would not be the force that it is today. It wouldn't have the rockets that it has today. It wouldn't have the military structure that it has today without the very generous support of Iran. Uh, and, and if we look at what the Houthis are doing in uh, uh, Yemen off the coast, uh, disrupting uh, uh, global maritime routes, uh, disrupting global trade, they clearly couldn't do what they're doing without the active support and encouragement from Tehran. And then you add to that uh, the uh, Shia militias in Iraq, uh, obviously funded, supported, trained by Iran, and in so doing, when they attack the US or if they attack Israel, that's also from Tehran. So you're saying, uh, as many people say, uh, well, maybe instead of fighting the proxies, we should go straight to the, to the head, to, to, the, to the Iranians. So the Israeli position, uh, as, as I understand it, and I think I'm in a good position to understand that is if you use the metaphor of an octopus, uh, and that's the one that's often used, that Tehran is the head of the octopus and the Houthis are one tentacle and Hamas is another tentacle and Hezbollah is a, another tentacle. That if we cut off one of the major tentacles, and that will be uh, Hamas in Gaza, then you weaken the whole beast. In other words, there is a ripple, uh, a ripple effect. Uh, there's, there's a fight going on in the Middle East between Iran and its axis of terror and between Israel and the pro-Western uh, pragmatic Arab states, uh, united with the West, yes, We're with the United States and others. Um, uh, 
it's not just Israel against Hamas. It's these two rival coalitions. If, heaven forbid, Israel was, would, was to lose, it's not going to happen. But if, from a theoretical point of view, if Israel was to lose our fight in Gaza, that would embolden, embolden the, uh, the Iranian coalition across the board. That would embolden that sort of radical Islamist uh, terrorism, not just in Gaza, but across the region and beyond. And beyond. In Europe and North America as well. And so if Israel wins, as we will, uh, that's not just a victory, a local victory for Israel against a brutal terrorist organization, but that's a victory against this axis of terror led by Iran. It's a victory for all those pro-Western forces, those more pragmatic forces in the Middle East. And, and it's a, a, a victory for the world, because if you defeat this sort of extremism in Gaza, the ripple effect is a positive ripple effect across, across the globe. I think that's how we look at the situation. Well, let's talk about that pragmatic group of Arab states. We often hear that the Qataris are part of that pragmatic group. But as we know, they're not exactly honest brokers here. I mean, they continue to play a role in the hostage negotiations, but they're also sponsors of Hamas. How are we to understand Israel's position here? So the Qataris have been a problem over years. Uh, and uh, they have this relationship with Hamas. As you know, they, the Hamas leadership is hosted in Doha, in the Qatari capital. They are VIPs there. And uh, how does Hamas, sorry, how does Qatar justify this? I mean, you wouldn't have a relationship with Al-Qaeda. You wouldn't have a relationship with ISIS. But you have a relationship with Hamas. And President Biden himself said, quote, Hamas is worse than ISIS, end of quote. And yet the Qataris embrace these people. Uh, uh, and why is this in any way justified? So the Qataris have been come under increasing criticism for their relationship with Hamas. And their way of responding is to say, well, our relationship uh, with Hamas brings benefits to the West. Uh, uh, and uh, they say specifically that we can, through our good offices and our relationship with Hamas, serve your interests too, and specifically to help bring out hostages. So they help bring out a first group of hostage. Uh, that's true. And now the proof of the pudding is in the eating, so to speak. Will they succeed in bringing out another group of hostages? And so far, the jury is out. But it's clear to me that the Qataris, uh, uh, the onus is on them to show their, uh, they can deliver. Because if they don't deliver, all their nice words of saying, well, our relationship with Hamas is serving uh, uh, some sort of global interest. Well, uh, once again, let's see what can happen. There's still, uh, the official number is 136 hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, including children, including women, including to elderly men, including all the others. Uh, uh, what is uh, is Qatar capable of delivering? And Let's once again, well, yes, exactly. Let's find out. Last question for you, Ambassador, before we let you go. Uh, there are all these reports this morning, speaking of Qatar, about an Al Jazeera journalist who was taken out by an Israeli airstrike. Is Israel targeting journalists? Well, first of all, Al Jazeera is one of the reasons that I think Qatar needs to be criticized because uh, the Al Jazeera network, especially the Arab network, is responsible for a lot of the uh, incitement across the region. Uh, you know, if Arab 
if Arab governments sometimes say we have to worry about our people, have very anti-Israel opinions, a lot of that's because of what Al Jazeera has been putting out day and night now for years. This sort of incitement, this sort of anti-Israel diatribe where the Jewish state is accused of all sorts of terrible, terrible crimes against humanity. And of course, Hamas are just freedom fighters. So, I mean, that's a problem. And, and that uh, uh, Al Jazeera would accuse uh, uh, Israel of targeting its journalists. That's just one of its uh, uh, many accusations that it makes of Israel that are totally baseless, that are regularly broadcast on the Al Jazeera network. But if you think about it, and, and you're, uh, you know, about defending democracy, uh, Israel is the only country in the Middle East which actually has an open, free press. Qatar definitely doesn't. And here you have a, a, a situation which is uh, truly uh, a, a, a touch crazy, uh, where you have an authoritarian regime which has no free press, is telling the only country that has a free press in the Middle East, the only country in the Middle East with a free press, Israel, that we are somehow mistreating journalists. Okay, well, Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we appreciate your time. I thank you for having me and I thank you for what you do. Okay, here are the other stories FDD is following today. My, uh, my colleagues, Eric Edelman and Sinan Gidi are out with a new essay in foreign policy detailing the highs and lows of the US-Turkish relationship. They rightly note that it's long past time for the United States to get tough on Ankara and start imposing costs on Erdogan's Islamist regime. Hamas support is the least of it. My colleagues Craig Singleton, Brad Bowman, and Mark Montgomery are keeping a close eye on Chinese military operations around Taiwan's territorial waters. Through sheer intimidation, Beijing hopes to push voters to elect a pro-China government. The Taiwan people vote for their president this weekend on January 13th. And finally, my colleague Jacob Nagel, who previously served as Prime Minister Netanyahu's national security advisor, is out with a new piece in the Jerusalem Post. He chronicles the horrendous track record of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA. He explains the post-war Gaza must include an alternative aid organization. I make a similar argument in a piece I published this weekend over at Commentary. You can read these and lots of other FDD articles on our website, fdd.org. Read our spot analysis on X at FTD and support our work with a tax deductible donation at FTD.org slash invest. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll see you Wednesday for another FTD morning brief. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer signing off for FTD. Mm -hmm.